Hello and welcome to the first of our Sitcom Club summer spin-off podcasts. Joining me, Munkanko, is your Paocho. Hello. Now then, even though we've not been watching any sitcoms for this particular show, we have actually been doing quite a bit of research and, and a fair amount of viewing. I don't think there's any sitcom club that has required us to have watched as many hours of television as this one has. Have we said the word game show club yet? Not yet, no. I know there's an embedded image in this MP3 tag so people can see that, but just to get it nice and official, welcome to Game Show Club. We've often gone off on tangents, haven't we? Because we've talked about shows on Challenge and the Game Show Network in previous Sitcom Club episodes when I've gone off topic. That was how this started. You were watching 321. It's not a big surprise. Again, I'll put that in the tags when I get round to tagging this. You were watching 321 on Challenge, and you started to become aware that there were edits being made. And I had some old copies from a previous run on Challenge from, what, 10, 15 years ago? So we started watching them to compare when the cuts were being made, and before you know it, we've watched a hell of a lot of 321. We have actually now seen every episode from the first three series, and we're now on to series four. And I've been watching one from every year after that as well. Now, I sense, Ocho, that people listen to this and they're saying, okay, well, yes, that's fine. You've done a lot of research, but have you gone the extra mile for this podcast? Are you going to be able to reveal something that we may not have seen if we've been watching 321 since the beginning of the year on Challenge? Well, as part of our research, we've also seen... Go on, I'll leave it to yourself to name it. Oh, that's this. That's how they sing the theme tune. That's... Un, dos, tres, responda otra vez. That, of course, is a Spanish... Well, what is it, a game show, quiz show, whatever it is, because it's all of them rolled into one. And It's three in one. It's entertainment. It's a quiz. It's a physical game. Well, to give this precise intro, it's a quiz, it's a game, it's fortune and fame. Well, that's the intro to three, two, one, not un, dos, tres, because... There are a few differences between the two formats. Okay, like let's set the scene for anybody who doesn't know what on earth we're rambling on about. So, first of all, Uno Dos Tres is from TVE, the Spanish state broadcaster, and it began in 1972. And then in 1978, Yorkshire Television, for the ITV network, brings the show over to the UK, and it's in reverse. It's now three, two, one. I'm going to bow to your superior knowledge. I think you have a better knowledge of the politics of television than I do. What kind of company were YTV in 1978? In 78, YTV were a station which was having a fair amount of success with network programming. Quite often it would be things like, for example, they were making a lot of sitcoms at the time and, of course, were responsible for far and away ITV's most successful sitcom of all time, Rising Damp, and that was just coming to the end of its run in 78. Emmerdale Farm, a daytime soap opera initially in 1972, and of course that was still going and eventually would then transition into peak time. Yorkshire were interesting because they had a little bit of everything. They had, for example, as we've seen from, because we'll, we'll discuss this when we start talking about the first series of 321, they weren't shy about plugging their own shows. For example... Yeah, they would have sitcoms, say, like Selwyn Froggett with Bill Maynard, but also they would have some factual shows hosted by people like Magnus Pike, for example. And of course, Alan Wicker had been one of the people behind Yorkshire Television at the beginning, so they always had him as their current affairs heavyweight. Now, the reason I ask is that 321 embodies that 
glitzy, something that fits well with ITV's reputation in years past, which is big, brash, glitzy, populist. It's an interesting one because it's a kind of show that you'd actually associate more with London Weekend. I'm struggling to think of any other shows of this type that came from Yorkshire in these days. I mean, they've already had Winner Takes All with Jimmy Tarbuck from 1976, but that's a straightforward quiz show. That's a straightforward half an hour general knowledge based I don't think there is anything comparable on British television. The closest would be something like The Generation Game, where you might get a routine, then followed by members of the public trying to recreate that routine. But it's a very European idea, it seems to me. Let's have a little bit of a quiz, and then let's stop and have a bit of non-quiz entertainment, and then have some more game show. Because what we're tiptoeing around is Brucey's Big Night. Well, exactly, yeah. I wanted to lay all these facts on the table right now because we'll probably come back to these different bits and pieces. So let's just spell them all out just now. The Generation Game, which is a Dutch format, was brought over to the UK by Bill Cotton for the BBC and he showed it to Bruce Forsyth and eventually, of course, that becomes Bruce Forsyth and the Generation Game. Now, that's been going on for seven years at this point when One's about to launch. Contrary to Received Wisdom... Bruce Forsyth did not defect from BBC to ITV to do Big Night. Brucey actually left the BBC, gave up voluntarily the Generation Game, in order to then take on a new role on the stage. It was a new musical venture that he was going into, which ended up folding after a relatively short run. So only after the failure of that did then Michael Grade make the approach to Brucey to then bring him in on Saturday night. But regardless of whether Brucey had gone to ITV or not, BBC needed somebody else for the Generation Game, and of course then they found Larry Grayson. Meanwhile, Brucey then takes residence on ITV on Saturday nights, in the process actually elbowing 321 out of the way, because 321 began on Saturdays, and then made way to Fridays, made way for Brucey's big night. And as you say about European formats, whereas 321 takes a Spanish format, which is, as we'll discuss, long form, sometimes it's two hours, sometimes it's longer, they've actually truncated that and made it a straightforward hour-long show for British TV. Brucey's Big Night, funnily enough, is actually modelled on the European format of the all-night entertainment show. I mean, Brucey's Big Night, generally speaking on average, was just a few minutes shy of two hours. And that, again, was something that really hadn't been done on British TV, apart from your occasional seasonal specials like Christmas Night with the Stars, for example, and the ITV equivalent of that. And, strangely enough, Brucey's Big Night just didn't work. It just didn't take off. People didn't like the long-form format, and they got bored. What was the format of Brucey's Big their... Night? What were the segments? Well, this is the thing, because as far as it having a format is concerned, I mean, it's arguable that it didn't really have a format at all. The only format you could say that it really had was, it's a format similar to the type of Saturday morning kids shows that you'd have had, like, Saturday Superstore and so on. You've got basically a two-hour block, and then you've got a little sequence of different bits and pieces. For example, you'd have Brucey would have a guest on each week, and he would interview them, and then he'd probably do a little routine with them if it's a singer or whoever it may be. You had a couple of sitcoms which would alternate. You'd had the Glums with Jimmy Edwards, and that alternated with the Worker with Charlie Drake, and they were in little sort of ten minutes, so little truncated versions of the sitcoms. You had an entirely separate game show, which is a £1,000 pyramid, which became the pyramid game with Steve Jones. Then you'd have all little bits and pieces with Brucey, such as Beat the Goalie, where people would phone in and try and 
score a penalty against a well-known goalkeeper, for example. And he would have bits and pieces where members of the public would be on stage with him, sort of like telling jokes, for example. That was one particular little routine that they did. Things like that, which were trying to tap into the most successful bits of the generation game where Brucey gets to interact with the public. You also had like other things which would just sort of fit in there, like the, the disco dancing championships for example and there was even material that was shot famously most famously of all cannon and ball shot a ton of sketches for bruce's big night none of which were shown they were billed repeatedly and they were never shown they were always dropped uh due to timing issues bruce's big night wasn't a live show it was recorded on thursday evenings before transmission on saturday the basic premise was brucey himself is the show he is the vehicle. It's all about him, and he's then bringing all of these different bits and pieces to yourself in these nice little 10 or 15 minute sections. And it's just not the kind of show that had been done before in the UK. Whereas, if you have like a European satellite set up and you go off and look at, say, German television or Spanish television of a Saturday evening, you'll see exactly that type of show. Long form shows. Sometimes, I mean, when we used to have TV International and Sky a few years back, they had shows that would open up at 8 o'clock in the evening and they'd still be going on at 11. And they would be exactly like that, just nice little bits and pieces here there, a little bit of something for everybody in a sort of magazine-type format. The show, Brucey's Big Night, which was actually sort of aiming to emulate the European format in terms of length and structure, didn't work at all. Whereas 321 took the Spanish show and then truncated it for a UK audience, and of course that was the one that was successful. That ended up making way to Friday nights, making way for Brucey, moving to Friday nights, and then of course then got Saturday nights back afterwards, and was then a Saturday night fixture for the next 10 years or so. So let's go through the initial format of 321. I'm going to come front head on how terrible the jokes are. Now bearing in mind that we've not yet had a chance to... <laughs> seen an episode of High Summer, uh, which I think, from, from the little that we've seen of it, I think that that's probably going to be the benchmark in terms of, not humour, but it's like, the kind of gags that you get in 3 to one remind me a little bit of the kind of gags that you would get in something like Noel's House Party. And a lot of that was lifted. Some of it, actually. Just absolutely lifted from Rowan and Martin's laughing. We've already got the one big departure from the Spanish format. In the Spanish format, the contestants are playing the quiz game at the beginning and they have to deal with the negative party who are a bunch of misers who don't like the idea of people winning money. So when they get an answer wrong, the misers will interrupt. I don't have enough Spanish to actually understand what they're going on. But it doesn't look like they're going through routines or telling gags. They're just sniping and being sarcastic to the contestants. That doesn't survive to the three, two, one format. What you have is when somebody gets an answer wrong, or when they get to the you, you go to this weird little side room that I guess is supposed to be the writers' room, and you have Chris Emmett, Dougie Brown, and Debbie Arnold, and they will just come out with a Christmas cracker level of gag that might be faintly related to the topic of the quiz. That only lasted one series, didn't it? As a lot of things in 3 one it was then scaled down so that it would be one comedian there and the gag would be perhaps a little bit less corny. It's well, what they call the... A little bit less dis- corny. Some of them aren't even gags. <laughs> well, there's one that we saw last night where somebody got a round of applause and they haven't even got to the punchline yes. yet. But, we'll- <laughs> but no, okay, the, the, the name of the group in the first series is the Disreputary Company. 
and they seem to be making a real virtue. Well, that, that, I think that's the difference between series one and two, is that when they tell a gag in series one, Ted Rogers will react by saying, that was lousy. And and that that's always his sort of response, because that's a gag from their point of view. It's the fact that they're telling bad jokes. Whereas even though the standard isn't particularly different in series two and three and so on, until eventually they stop doing that in series four, Ted Rogers doesn't react in the same way. So they don't seem to be sort of emphasising how awful the jokes are from series two onwards. Is that a justification on your part? Because yes. the awful gags are just awful. It's not like a good old-fashioned groaner that you might get on something like, I'm sorry, I'll read that again, or I'm sorry, I haven't a clue, or Hello Cheeky, or anything else with Tim Buck Taylor in it. Don't mention Hello Cheeky to me. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'd listen to an hour, an hour of Hello Cheeky at Christmas. So they are as bad as Hello Cheeky. Right, okay. Actually, I want to talk about Ted's material. We haven't even mentioned Ted Rogers is the host. I think it's fair to assume that anybody who's moderately interested knows at least some of the personnel involved. This stuff's being repeated on television now. Now, when you see Bob Monkhouse presenting, like, Family Fortunes, he seems to relish that as a vehicle for all the jokes he's written and memorised. Ted seems to be getting the jokes out of the way. As I understand it, when he was starting out... um like doing things like the Billy Cotton Band Show, his thing was his torn from the headlines topicality. And any time Ted seems to really enjoy telling a joke, it tends to be a political joke. But he can't do that on top of the political situation humour because in the weeks between 3 to 1 being shot and broadcast, the situation might have changed. He can only do very general references to people he's fairly sure are still going to be in the cabinet by the time this goes out. I mean, sometimes he's not really even doing jokes. He's simply talking about his 3 to 1 whiplash gesture. The thing that Ted really seems to like is just interacting with the people. Certainly a couple of series in, and he comes on and he is shaking hands with people in the audience. And he's bouncing down the stairs and he seems to like meeting the contestants and he likes interacting with the hostesses. And then when somebody does a sketch and they come on to drop the MacGuffin, which we'll talk about later, he seems to enjoy talking to them. Ted's really a host. This is his party, and he likes introducing people to other people and talking to people himself. He likes chatting about how the contestants are doing. He wants to know what their reasoning is for rejecting the prizes that they reject. That seems to be it for him, and the jokes just seem to be ice-breaking. That's what game show hosts do. They tell jokes. Now, I'm going to make a potentially controversial statement here. As a viewer, I actually prefer... Ted Rogers interacting with contestants than when I see Bruce Forsyth do the same. Now, Bruce Forsyth, of course, is a brilliant game show host. He's absolutely fabulous at it. And probably himself and Bob Monkhouse, you probably say, are the two eminent purveyors of that craft. And yet, I always just get an undercurrent of a little bit of tension when Bruce is interacting with contestants because you get the impression that He's determined that he's going to sort of do this in his own way. And you, you sort of see it sometimes when they've got like repeats of play cards right or the prizes right. You'll see him just gently sort of nudge people as if to say, I want you looking into the lens when I'm saying this bit. Or if you're not standing in exactly the same place that I want you to be, I'm just going to sort of drag you into position. Obviously, that's part of his personality. That's his old catchphrase is I'm in charge. I just get the impression that Ted Rogers is just more laid back and relaxed and that probably puts the contestants more at ease as well. I don't disagree with you, but I think there's a reason behind this. That Brucey as game show host really starts with the Palladium when he's getting people up on stage to play some of the games. Palladium, another variety format. And he starts in 
when does he start? 58. I think people were a lot less television savvy, a lot more nervous, a lot less certain of what they're doing. So it needed Bruce's strong personality holding all this together. And he must have been a revelation at the time. Because if you watch Monty Python's Nosmo Claphanger sketch, where they've taken the format of, is it take your pick? And just have him being unpleasant to the contestants. Brucey, Brucey must have been to a certain extent a real-life Nosmo Claphanger. After we've had affable Michael Miles and obsequious Huey Green being all nice to the contestants, the fact that you have somebody you'll push them around... And the later development of having a camera that Bruce can look into and just roll his eyes. By the time Ted Rogers is doing 321, 78, we're still at that nice stage where people are a little bit nervous about being on television. It's something I complain about. Sometimes I'll look at things, identify at what point in the history of television were people on game shows suddenly determined to be the stars themselves. I've seen Twitter conversations recently about the current version of a show like catchphrase which has come back from the last few months and i've seen conversations you know from people in the know who are saying this is what's wrong with game shows these days is that a lot of these contestants come from casting agencies and these are people who yeah, they're quite happy to turn up on a game show if, i don't if that's think what it's comes as away, as but they'd also say. be quite happy to turn up on something like big brother i mean ideally that's probably what exactly what they'd like they're still real people in as much as they aren't household names, but they're putting it on. They're putting on a performance. I looked at the opening titles of Keynotes recently, and that's what's circa 1988, and you've already got people doing thumbs up into the camera. Yay, woo, we're not, we're not stuffy in English. That was the problem. That's when the emotional incontinence <laughs> in British life restarted from the 18th century. Now, this is interesting. This is an interesting point because... A few years, it's actually quite a few years back now, I think it's about 2005, there was a really, really good, if you can track it down, there's a really, really good little documentary on Channel 4 called Who Killed Saturday Night TV? And at that particular point, this is in the infancy of both The X Factor and Strictly, and at the time that that program was made, Saturday Night TV was getting the lowest ratings of the week. And amongst the bits and pieces they talked about, strangely enough, massive omission from that show where was 321? I don't even think it got mentioned, amazingly. But nevertheless, one show that they referred to in that was this format hosted by Brian Conley in 2003 called Judgment Day. Like most people, I never saw a full episode of Judgment Day because I don't think anybody ever saw it. <laughs> and the reason that was given in this as to why it didn't work and why ITV pulled it so quickly, I think after just a couple of episodes, was that Wimbledon coverage on the other side, Tim Henman was playing Matter Over Run, and that's where all the viewers were. And yet that format was contestants. That's it. That is the format entirely. Contestants come on and just want to be popular. They want to be loved by the audience. They're not actually doing anything. They're not answering general knowledge questions. They're not participating in any kind of like Krypton Fighter type games. It's just a lineup of people and on they come and they're saying, come on then, judge me. Am I popular? Am I not? And so on. And that, that seems like a really weird format to think that that was going to sort of take off. I suppose in a way it's, it's probably quite nice that didn't take off because if we actually got to... We were talking off-air just recently about the difficulty or otherwise of the questions in general knowledge shows these days, particularly in peak time shows. 
Now, if a format like that had taken off, could we have got to the stage where we didn't even bother with general knowledge questions anymore? That's that's funny, dirty stuff. You, you get that on Mastermind and University Challenge. If that's what you want, you'll find them on BBC Two. But we don't trouble people with questions on ITV or BBC. We just, you know, we, we have personalities. That's what it's all about now. It's all about personality. It's all about me. You know, people showing off and what have you, showing off their, inverted commas, skills. Whereas, yeah, we don't really have a lot of that going on in and three to one Well, that's why I think Ted's now dealing with a moderately more comfortable version of the public. So just enough that it needs him to have a certain amount of control and bring them out of their selves, but not quite so much of that I'm in charge business. Now, at what point do we want to mention Zippy Man? <laughs> Let's not talk about... In. No, no. We're going to talk about three to one. We're not going to talk about the renewed celebrity squares. <sighs> Let's not talk about that. If we ever do a full-length set of game show clubs then maybe we'll talk about the seamy underbelly of <laughs> contestants who've been encouraged let's not blame them for it, who've been encouraged to start acting up on camera let's go back to 321 with its nice balance between timidity and gregariousness so as a viewer I'm relaxed watching Ted Rogers interacting with the contestants in a way that I'm not always with hosts and he's not somebody who feels the need to push himself into the, the lens. He doesn't need to take over the show. He doesn't need to engage in, in any, any kind of put-downs or anything like that at all. And so he's the ideal host for this type of show because, of course, you're asking a lot of the contestants in this show because, okay, you've got general knowledge around at the beginning and you've got your little sort of parlour game business in the middle, but then you're, you're asking people to sort of crack these clues we need to explain of course about this in more detail but you ask people to crack these clues without really giving them time to think about it because it's not like they're going to get like a chance to sit there for 20 minutes in silence and just sit there and decrypt those rhymes i mean they've got all that business going on with them all the time and they're in front of a studio audience in front of blazing hot lights it's not as are we really going to become those horrible internet explainers yeah okay fine <laughs> if you have any moderate level of general knowledge, interaction with the world, or you've got challenge. You already know what we're talking about, but right now we're going to pat you on the head and patronise you and for some reason assume that somebody who's downloaded something called Game Show Club 321 doesn't know what the format of 321 is. So, initially we meet three couples and we have some form of quiz with them. It might just be naming things in a particular category, Later on, it does just become a straightforward question and answer session. This is then narrowed down to two couples. Now, in the first hangover from the Spanish format, the first couple of series, these two couples then had to do a crazy physical challenge, including throwing darts into models of people's bare bottoms. <laughs> that really happened. It's the kind of thing Clive James would have shown on his show and sneered at if it had been Japanese. That's your second part of the 3-2-1. Apparently, it's a quiz, it's a game, and then we get to the variety section. So our game show is now stopping for regular sketches in the first few series. When it's in its real glory days, the thing that stuck in my mind seeing it as a child was the sketches, and it made it feel like the show lasted three hours. So you get a little comedy skit. You'll also sometimes get a song... You might get one comedian doing a routine. It might be stand-up, or you might get a clown blowing their car up. And at the end of these sketches, they will bring a clue 
and a thing called a MacGuffin, which is an object which is in itself a clue, and they'll read out this little rhyme. Now, the first couple of series, I think the rhyme is just about conceivably helpful to what the prize might be. Later series, no. So eventually the prizes will pile up, but you can't send somebody home with five prizes, so they have to keep whittling them down, they have to keep rejecting prizes. One of the prizes is a booby prize, which is a brand new dustbin represented by the animatronic model, Dusty Bin, my later animatronic model, initially it's just a model on wheels. He has to have his own handler to push him out. And it's whittled down using these clues until at the end of the night they're either going home with the star prize, which is usually a car. The holiday, maybe. Usually very desirable. Something that's supposed to be a prize, but to be honest, there's a bit of a white elephant. Like a thousand pounds worth of wool clothing. Or a home gymnasium, or crockery. A dog. A kitchen t- yes, a dog. <laughs> a literal living, breathing dog. Ted is very careful to say that um, if you hadn't wanted the dog, he would have given you the money and taken the dog back to the kennels. Like, because they did that twice. Another time they brought out a greyhound. said, oh, you would have you know, well, been they brought owner out of a, a greyhound. They brought out a live leopard, didn't they? But that wasn't the prize. That was just kind of leading <laughs> to the prize. Gold jewellery, which is nice, but you can't drive home in it. We'll get to specifics later. We'll talk about specific prizes that stick in our minds. So that's it. At the end of the night, they're either going home with something nice, something moderately nice, or a dustbin. Now, I just want to quickly go back to round one, because as you said, for the bulk of the series, you've got your question-answer section, and then one couple's eliminated. But in series one, the couple that won the question-answer round were then eliminated and then sat through the rest of the show and then came back the following week to defend the title. Wearing little glittery sashes with 3-2-1 on them. (laughs) And as it turned out, the couple in series one, I think they were backwards, was about at least half a dozen times. And they were doing all right. They were winning hundreds of pounds every week. I'm sure they at least once they said they'd been on holiday during the course of the, the run of them defending their title. That eventually was changed in Series 2, and then it was a straightforward, if you're Dunderheed and you're knocked out, that's you. Off you go. I think even after that point, though, you do see the eliminated contestants in the audience being forced to watch, thinking, that could have been us. That could have been us going like home with the leather jacket. I <laughs> could have been us trying to force a smile. There's one thing that I haven't yet seen, and you know what I'm going to say here. There's one thing that I haven't yet seen in the opening round that I'm just I'm desperate to see this. And that's why I'm just going to keep on watching every episode until eventually I do. For most series, Ted will say, okay, this question is about rivers. And <laughs> I'll name a part of the world, and I want you to name the river that's most associated with it. And for example, London, it would be the River Thames. So, And then he says, so I'll give you that one. So therefore, in London, it would be the river, and the contestant says, Thames. And then they go on, off they go, and so on. I'm just waiting for the day when somebody just gets that wrong and, and, and says, uh, I'm Clyde. I mean, honestly, did they have any contingency plan for that at all? I mean, we have actually seen some where somebody's got, like, the first one that they would have actually had to answer correctly. They've got that one wrong. So and they've been actually given 10 like, quid. Yeah. I don't think they should give them 10 quid. I think they should give them a book token. A national book token. That's what they should give them. Yes, but remember, but, that was in the first round. In the second round, it's multiples of what they won in the first round. They get multiple so book multiple tokens. Multiple book then. tokens. Well, you're a cruel man, yeah. Mooncat. 
Can I just mention, the, initially, the first couple of series, they don't do this thing of, I'll give you this one. The reason I find that interesting is, of course, the name of the Spanish one is Un, Dos, Tres, Responda Otra Vez. Respond again, another time. So I'm guessing that that's one of the reasons that show was called that, is just before the host sort of says, so, you know, okay, I'll say the Thames, one, two, three, say it again. Well, I thought it was interesting. <laughs> Did you know no, that Madrid is the only you. European capital not situated on a waterway? There you go. I'm, well, I'm trying to be interested no, about the Spanish here. I'm not saying that's a hard thing to do. They have a very interesting history. Before we go any further with Frito, let's just focus a little bit on Uno Dos Tres, because we've got like a six-year period where that's going on. And as we were discussing a part of our research... During the watch, run of the first series of Uno Dos Tres, their country transitions to democracy. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's quite a milestone in itself. But we Whereas were democracy we is still watching, unknown in Kirkstall. We were watching a 1982 episode, which went on a bloody long time. I mean, officially what, one hour, an hour and 42. three quarters. But as we're watching this, we just said, for a laugh, we sort of said, you know, I don't suppose there were any other channels that people could watch. And then we looked it up and it was actually true. Until 1982, there were only two television channels in Spain and they were both public service channels, both coming from RTVE, the equivalent of BBC. And then in 82, there started to be like a very, very small number of regional stations like Catalonia and one from Madrid and so on. And then it was only in 1990, believe it or not, that you actually got full deregulation and you started having commercial channels and cable and all sorts. So as far as that initial one of 321 is concerned, I mean, the whole, because was it 72 through to 78 and then there was a four-year gap? So as far as that initial run is concerned, then unless you are watching maybe like the Spanish equivalent of Kenneth Clark's Civilization on TV2. Which is probably also presented by Ibanez Serrador. <laughs> Ibanez Serrador is the creator of 123. And <laughs> we watched the last episode of Series 1. It's on YouTube. How to describe it? I've never seen a British game show end this way. Oh, you whittled it down. Here's the prize. Oh, it's the booby prize. Oh, it's not the booby prize because it's the last of the series. So here's a little special something for you. And then sad music starts playing and the audience get up and walk out in silence. And the lights dim. And then we have the creator of the show sitting there going, well, that's the last one of the series. Maybe we won't get a chance to do this again. We just try to entertain. Look. This is a circus, because that was the theme of the episode. <laughs> it's really strange. <laughs> well, I mean, at first we were sort of thinking, did they end like this every week? Eventually we sort of twigged this was like an end of season finale, but I, I can't imagine the same happening here. And then when I can't it comes imagine. Back, he spends five full minutes saying, ah, well, the show that you all remember is not really the show that was. It was a bit different, it was a little rougher. And this is really the show we wanted to make. It's going to be a little bit bigger and a little bit more spectacular. But it takes him five minutes to say that. He's really doing like the emotional blackmail job on you because he's got a photograph of himself in 78 with his young son. And he says, oh, and here he is now. Oh, hello. I wouldn't mind seeing British television try that, at least, you know, for a few months. Every show should be prefaced by its producer or creator. Hang on, you want to see Lee Francis come on as himself before an episode, before every episode of Celebrity Juice, and try and make out that this is some grand artistic statement of his, and then he goes into Keith Lemon mode and starts telling jokes about shit, literally. 
you would be curious to see how that would pan out. <laughs> well, yeah. So, so Undos Tres <laughs> takes a full 20 minutes of the revived version before we even get the contestants. We have the hostesses, the secretaries, and each one hands over their glasses and there's a ceremony. And then we get introduced to the new negative party, which are all women. I mentioned that to you when we were watching this. A lot of cultural commentators right now are all wetting themselves about the supposed significance of Tess Daly and Claudia Winkleman being a female presenting duo on the new series of Strictly this autumn. And yet here we are in 1982 and we have an all-female presenting lineup. And that's as in presenter, all the hostesses and your comedic trio as well. And it's not as if it's been billed in that fashion. It's not tried to put it into a pigeonhole and said, We don't speak enough Spanish. That might have been what Imanez Serrador was talking about. He might have been saying, Women, lots of them, all on the screen. <laughs> Do not be afeared by this mind-blowing sight. But no, people of Spain, that were a good 30 years ahead of the British on this. No, I was just relying on yourself. I was going to say a man in Madrid, but you're not. I had to but, get my wife yeah. to watch some of it, and even she didn't quite catch it because she she understands Mexican Spanish. There was one bit where I said, so what did he say? And she went, that was just a noise. <laughs> yeah, we were like that with George Roper the other day. Even yesterday, we could understand, but the, the misers, I'm guessing they must have been using a lot of really, really regional dialect. And that's before we get on to the fact that in Spain, the booby prize sings the theme tune. Who wouldn't have loved Dusty Ben to sing the theme tune to 321? I've got my hand up. Okay. But we don't know what he sounds like because he's never spoken. I imagine he sounded a bit like Goofy. I'm thinking he's a bit more Woody Woodpecker. Oh. oh. A sort of a wisecracking sort of Bill Coast type character. You know, that's, that's what I'm sort of picturing. So back in Kirkstall Road Studios. We have a nice little group of supporting artists who are there. Some of them are there for multiple series. I don't think, that, apart from Ted himself, I don't think anybody is actually there for all the series. But first of all, okay, we've got the hostesses called Gentle Sex because they are supposedly sexist. Oh, they're, they're stupid series. glasses. They have these stupid white glasses on, which is supposed to indicate... Just get, you know, we've got colour television with reasonable contrast. You can put normal secretary-style glasses and they might look good, but this just looks odd. They just look like welders from the future. <laughs> they look like they've just popped them on from a copy that came with that week's TV Times, and Michael Rod is now about to say, okay, now put your 3D glasses on now. I do quite like how the and gentle then... sex do have individual personalities. Yes. The hostess is in the first couple of series. A little bit later on, where we get to sort of series four or five thereabouts, I get the impression that the hostesses are more sort of like their modern day contestants, that they're sort of showing off the personality a bit more. Whereas the hostesses in the first few series just seem to be themselves. And again, they're relaxed and yeah, the real personality comes out. When Free Two One began in nineteen seventy eight, this is a promotion I'm actually looking at a promotional photograph just now with the gentle sex. Funnily enough, this photograph is actually dated 22nd of May 78, which is a full two months before the show actually begins. But the original lineup was Tula, Patsy Ann Scott, Gail Playfair, Jennifer Leyland, Marie Allenville, and Holly Allen Smith. And over time, of course, they changed. Annie St. John came in, I believe, towards the end of 78. And yeah, you have like sort of all changes of personnel. And of course, you've got Karen Palmer as George, the chauffeur, in the first series, and then just as herself later on. 
you've also got, of course, we've mentioned the distributory companies. So Debbie Arnold is only in Series 1, but Chris Emmett and Mike Newman are there for quite a few years. And I think Chris Emmett was probably the longest-lasting cast member of all. The thing about Chris Emmett is, like Ted, he's a political animal. I mean, he just plows on and does a Jim Callahan impression every time. Or Dennis Healy. Wasn't he in the first series of Week Ending? I'm not it's, sure. I've, I think in the Burkis way, which is more a general yes, kind yeah. of slightly off kilter comedy. But there's this feeling that he wants to be doing topical comedy. Well, of course, his thing for for years and years and years, right up until I think it was what 2002 when it ended, oh, was course. the news headlines. Yes, Roy Hudd. And he was also, funnily enough, he was one of the original people involved in Not Nine O'clock News in the pilot, of course, which never was broadcast. That's possibly what I was thinking of rather than weekending, yes. So sometimes Chris seems like a bit straining at the leash, and other times he's having the time of his life. I mean, he stays with the show long enough. The one to watch is 1984 Circus, when he gets to be the Circus Ringmaster, and that is a man who loves his work. <laughs> Obviously a born compare. Mike Newman is interesting because he's really good at selling the corny gags. I think partially because if you look at some of those old school comedians type comedian there's a tendency to sometimes laugh at your own joke some of them did that or some of them would look to the audience was it george roper <laughs> some of his gags looks to the audience well i tried it doesn't look like it's a bit of stage <laughs> sticky <laughs> i don't know if he thinks the camera's not on him but was mike newman occasionally he'll deliver this joke and just like stare into the camera with this what have i done look it's really effective <laughs> We've noticed that Mike has a tendency to, going into business for himself, that sounds like a negative, but what I mean is that in the sketches, sometimes he starts sort of like elongating the vowels and what have you. And I it's don't know if like it's a case if you can tell when Mike is bored or not happy with the material. There is one where he comes on with a false moustache half stuck on and half just flapping about. And between each <laughs> line, he just goes, No! <laughs> 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 he starts delivering his lines like this. <laughs> I don't know if it's kind of like, oh, God, just get through this. I'll keep myself amused. He doesn't do that every time. Sometimes he'll stand back and let the others get the lights, and other times it's just, I'd, I'd like to know what it's an indication of. It's, it's very funny, though. And then, of course, you have your guest artists. Now, we'll come to the actual performers in a moment, but you've also got a contingent of well-known people who come along. People like Magnus Pike and Emmeline Hughes and Barbara Woodhouse and other people who are sort of perhaps associated with Yorkshire TV or they just happen to be somebody who's in the news, whatever it may be, and they'll come along and simply deliver the MacGuffin and the rhyme. They're not asked to suddenly take part in an impromptu episode of Opportunity Knocks or anything like that. They seem to be more of sort of a mainstay in the first few series and that seems a bit closer to the Spanish format where you have just people arrive at the table and then actually engage in because I mean we, we watched that hour and three quarter Spanish episode from 82 yeah, they, they weren't sketches, sketches. so far wasn't yes. it even recognisable that was a sketch on a set and it was they still just seem to have like, here look look at this set looks just like the Arabian Nights doesn't it fantastic right now somebody's just going to come up and walk and, and shoot the breeze with us for ten minutes I think the golden age of three, two, one starts with series three, though, you get more animation of Dusty 
You get him dancing around, you know, cell animation, not not just animatronics. The animatronics, I don't think, start till the next series. But there's even animation for the 3-2-1 holiday. Look at what you could have won, and the, the, the little plane flies out, and it's dusty, and Golden Ages have to end. I would say that Golden Age ends with the end of the series from 84, because when you get into 85, suddenly Dusty's no longer animating in the way that he once was. He's now sort of slightly computerized well, in the way for, that for 1985, went in the a generated Dusty bin is pretty impressive. It's just that he doesn't do much. He just leaps out and laser beams the title. The, no, the problem with 1985 thing is they start listing the prizes up top. John Benson comes on. Three Nights in the Caribbean. never quite got that as being a hook for the viewer. Just knowing what the prize is at the beginning of the show does that actually make you more likely to continue watching it. It, it spoils it for me. Because they do occasionally pull... A th- right, let's time, time to talk about the prizes. They do occasionally pull weird little switcheroos. The first series, we always know there's a car. And from the second series, they sort of say, look, there's not going to be a car every time. If there isn't a car, then there's usually a holiday. But there is that weird little tension of seeing, especially if the car is off and the dustbin's off. Those have been rejected before a certain point. It's like, what are they going home with? Are they going home with a silver dinner service? Which is very nice, but it's still a... (sighs) Maybe it's the generation I grew up with. Maybe my parents' generation would have loved to have owned a silver dinner service. Whereas these days, everybody eats with their fingers and they just put their hands in a bag of salt and shove it in their mouths. Well, a dinner service is not really meant to be eaten off, though, is it? I mean, yes, it is, but no, it isn't. It's meant to be what did Janice put Long into a display win cabinet. The first yeah, it was something along those lines, wasn't it? It was like all this like silver cutlery, and there was like all these little trinket bits and pieces, and it was the kind of stuff where you wouldn't because ever actually use Because somebody tweeted her this. about it when they started repeating from edition one, and she said, "Yeah, we sold it. We sold it, <laughs> and, and used the money to put the deposit down on a house." So, you know, obviously it's a very nice prize. The one that I always dread, if I'd ever been on the show, the one that I really wouldn't have wanted, the sort of nice booby prize, the gold watches. Yes, they're expensive. Yes, they're useful because they tell the time. I wouldn't stride out of Kirkstall Road with my head held up high going, I am somebody who owns a gold watch. Well, I mean, okay, it's the dirty little secret that they don't really talk about or at least overtly because it would somewhat spoil things and and make a large part of each and every game show redundant but Ted conveys the information each time they'll bring out the white elephant prize and they'll talk about how luscious it is or how rare it is or wow can you imagine having one of these or have you got space for this kind of thing and then right at the end he'll slip in something like and in total this prize is worth 800 pounds and then straight away you know right the contestant is then going to be offered the option of then just taking £800 instead of the price. So if you got offered the gold watches, if that was your prize, then you just listen out for that bit where they say, and and, and together these are actually worth £1,000. Great. I'll have that. Thanks very much. And presumably this is an arrangement where everybody wins because it means then that you're getting the cash, I'm going to go through all the bother of actually selling that damn thing privately, and it's also cheaper for YTV to give you the, the sort of the wholesale price for the item rather than actually having to give it away. How many times have you seen it in like the local newspapers where somebody has won a car in a raffle and then immediately sold it back to the dealer? And just, yeah, better arrangement for everybody involved. Well, hey. So I think if, if they were to make that motto there, I think that that would dilute your enjoyment of it because 
If the IBA rules had actually stipulated that Ted always has to spell out precisely what the cash value is and make it very, very clear that you have the option of taking a check to this value instead of this... Can, can I reveal something upsetting about family fortunes? Right, you know how some of the answers had prizes behind them? So they'd say something and they'd play the little noise. And in the Max Bygraves era, they'd play the little noise three times because Max didn't twist. <laughs> Oh, you've won a prize! I've heard that when it's sort of, oh, right, this, oh, and this answer, you get this lovely microwave oven. I heard they got given Argos vouchers. <laughs> so, well, this is Argos vouchers to the value of a microwave oven in Argos, but if you want to get something else. I did once see a competition which was a sports publication. It was offering the reader the chance to win every HBO boxing pay-per-view for a whole year. And then in the tiny small print at the bottom, it just said, yeah, on the basis that we reckon there's going to be 12 pay-per-views and they're going to cost $39.95, <laughs> we're going to give you a check for X amount that you go, do what you like with it. So are um, there any prizes that stick in your mind? There were certain ones where I'm thinking, oh, I'd love that. And usually it's going to be AV equipment. It's going to be something like, for example, a big old videotape machine with the old piano keys and it's got like the separate color camera attached to it and there's like the big screen tv sometimes i'm trying to sort of detect between the couples who prefers this prize and is there going to be a potential argument between them later on when they're then also presented with the cash option <laughs> which one are they going to take because i mean the other night we saw one where they won exactly that and the guy was he was over the moon he was jumping up for joy way well, hey. and his wife was just like yeah, that that's nice. Lovely. And presumably all she's sort of thinking is, oh my God, there's going to be more junk that's going to end up in the garage. He's going to piss about with this for three months. I'm not going to see him. He's not going to do any of those little jobs around the house that he's been putting off for <laughs> ages. He's just going to be fucking about with this. And then eventually it's just going to gather dust. And then somebody backstage is going to say, or oh, you could take £700. And there you go. And then the problems begin. Do you remember the satellite dish, which was offered before Sky? <gasps> yes! It was a massive, huge Core. satellite dish for picking up channels that probably aren't in English. Straight off the set of Terry and June. That is one of those situations where it would be a white elephant to somebody who's not really into their TV and an absolute dream. But would anybody really be excited about winning some leather jackets? There were leather trench coats, actually, weren't they? What about those ones where it's like a really convoluted prize, so it's something like, for example, you've won a day out at like a fashion store and you get to choose all this lovely attire and what have you. I'm just looking like, I don't give a shit what I'm wearing. I'm not interested in fashion. Oh, there was an interesting that. one where it wasn't the prize in and of itself. There was, I'd say they'd won like a kitchen set. They'd won a table and some cutlery. And, and in that was something like taxi rides for a year. <laughs> that was thrown in with it. Well, greatest prize of all, fish. Okay. <laughs> yes. A year's supply of fish. Every Friday, <laughs> obviously clearly part of some papist plot, every Friday they could have rung a fishmonger's and say, bring us some fish. And it would have been on YTV's shilling. <laughs> and they bring out they bring out the a big cart just laden down with fish. And Ted said that there were some live lobsters in there. <laughs> But then you get things like caravans and saunas. Yeah, I mean, the, the, okay, those those prizes, they're, they're now the stereotypical, look at what you would have won on Bullseye. So everybody always says speedboat. It wasn't always a speedboat. But yeah, you get things like that where, yeah, that's going to be such a pain in the tail to actually, first of all, house, 
and then maintain and even use in some circumstances. I mean, if you're in inner city, how the hell are you going to use a prize like that? Wasn't there one that was like a hovercraft quite early on? It was like, I think it was Series 1 that was like some bloody big enormous hovercraft with like the sort of inflatable base and then the motor and what have you. A couple of motor scooters, the smiles on the contestants froze. I mean, fortunately they hadn't won them. But it was that kind of thing of like, we can't actually punch the air and go, yes, we rejected that. I'll take, I'll take the bin end of it. <laughs> so, star prize, car. A couple of nice situations. There's one where the couple reject the car. They've whittled it down. They've rejected the car. They've rejected the bin. They've rejected a few white elephants. What are they left with? And Ted reveals that it's another car. Okay, it's a Mini, it's not a Ford Fiesta, but it's a car, you can drive home in it. And it's just this nice moment where he says, yeah, you've won a car, and the woman just goes, oh, no, what? She's, she's basically got her, oh, great, we've won a bunch of wool face on, and then suddenly realised that they pulled another star prize. But there is one case where the star prize is also the booby prize. <laughs> okay, now you can really sort of envisage any circumstances where wouldn't the star prize was going to be an annoyance. However, this particular edition, was this not the music hall edition for that particular series? And so I think like Danny LaRue was the main turn and it was all like a sort of miniature version of the good old days. So out comes the vehicle and it's a vintage car. A 1928 Austin 7, I believe. And Ted says to the contest, do you like vintage cars? Not really. (laughs) <laughs> the bloke is not happy. Well, Has that got a windscreen that's plate glass? Well, sh- surely it must have to conform to... I don't to doubt it's like street legal, but standard. what was street legal at the time that that show went out? Well, never never mind the windscreen. What about having to use the handle to start it up in the first place? I mean, it's passed its MOT for a year, but the upkeep... What kind of fuel does it take? It's not one of those that takes an ethyl diesel mixture. <laughs> <laughs> Take that bugger into your local garage who has got parts for, like, the current crop of Fords and Skodas and Ladders and what have you. Take this bloody thing in, and the first thing he's going to say to you is, well, it's the parts, you see. You can't get the parts. I'm going to have to get them shipped over from Switzerland. You know, it really horrible if afterwards it's sort of saying, so do you want the car or do you want the uh, the wholesale value? And so, yeah, we'll, we'll take the money. Okay, so that's £15.10 and six. That's the nineteen twenty-eight <laughs> price. <laughs> Phil marks that contestant when he was asked, are you into vintage cars? He could have just gritted his teeth and said, yeah, nothing I like better, but no, he gave an honest answer. Not really. At least he didn't say, no, I hate it. I've got, okay, is this a false memory? I've got this vague, 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 vague memory of one of the prizes, I'm, it might not even be free to one, but one of the prizes at some point being a fur coat and the lady saying, no, I can't stand no I don't like fur and yeah I don't think she actually won it I think it was one of the prizes she rejected thankfully okay if you live on a second floor flat what are you going to do with that NEC satellite dish exactly apart from take up your entire spare room with it (laughs) which will be no use anyway because you can't use it indoors one last point on the prizes I once read a forum post from somebody in the TV industry who said that they were recording the Christmas special of a game show, not three, two, one. They obviously wanted a nice, happy ending to the show going out at Christmas time. They asked the question of the contestant. Contestant gets question wrong. Episode ends on a downer. After this, the floor manager comes running on and says, 
I'm terribly sorry about this, ladies and gentlemen. We had a technical fault, and I'm afraid we've lost the end to the show. We're going to have to retake this. Does everybody, is that okay? Do you mind? And they said to the contestant, do you mind? Of course not. They then ask a different question. Contestant gets it right, wins the prize, which is exactly what they wanted to happen. Now, I'm not quite sure what would have happened if the contestant had got the second question wrong. I don't know how often they could have tried this trick until eventually they got it right. But of course, that's what you want. It's Christmas time. You want a happy ending to the show. Now, I don't know if you could have done that kind of thing in 3-2-1, given the nature of it with the clues and so on. I suppose there might have been ways to arrange that, but there's obviously been none of that going on here because not once, but twice in succession, the Christmas show ends with them winning the damn bin. I mean, at least in the first episode, it's celebrity contestants, Terry Wogan and Claudia Rogers. They win the bin, but it's okay because actually it turns into a prize and it's all going to charity anyway. But... The Christmas episode from 79, the contestants will win the bin. And there's no U-turn, there's, there's no twist in the tail. No, it's just, well, sorry about that, he won the bin. Anyway, Merry Christmas! I'm not laying all the blame at Kirstel's feet, but the ratings for the Morgan Y show on ITV were actually down that year. And I think that you've got to say, you know, if you're going to start the evening's entertainment on ITV on a downer, then do you expect people to stay tuned? I'm sure they didn't do anything like that on the Generation Game on the other side. They probably just handed them the bloody conveyor belt. It didn't matter whether they could remember what was on it or not. So the later years. We've talked about the year. The later years has been a decline. I think they're fine if they'd been an entirely new show with an entirely new title. But once you get the idea of 3-2-1 being big variety, lots of extended sketches and lots of messing around, based around a theme. Those later ones where you get a lot more songs, you get probably two songs and a dance routine. In fact, there's one where you get two dance routines. And it's a nice set, but it's the same set every week. If it was the beginning of something new, it would be something, but in, in terms of 321, it, it only feels like a decline because they get used to a certain style of doing things. And of course, they didn't start using a synthesizer for the theme tune. Oh, I mean, that, that's 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 a trait of sort of 1980s, you know, we must get rid of all this overmanning and what have you, when you start to get, and it happens so often, you hear it so often in shows of that era where you've got rid of the, the orchestra, and now you're, you've got the entire theme song composed and played on Casio, presumably a slightly better model than was available in the Brian Mills catalogue, but still, it sounds cut down. And then Ted has to start announcing the guests at the beginning. He's not only announcing the prizes, he's announcing the guests as well. Why don't you just have John Benson come out at the beginning and say, and tonight, they win the car! <laughs> as far as the overall content of the show is concerned, I don't really think there's very much, unless you fundamentally change the format of the show, there's not very much that 321 itself could do, because let's face it, by... I mean, 321 actually ended in 1988 with a Christmas special, last series was in 87, but 1987, Variety, as we know, is dead, because... You know, variety has been on the decline, not just in terms of television, but of course the theatres and the musicals are long, long since gone. I mean, in 78, you've still got performers who had been on the musical stage. But by 87, I mean, those people aren't there and that training ground isn't there anymore. So you can't really expect variety to exist in its own little vacuum. And you have the thing where it tries to engage with alternative comedy, surprisingly successfully, I think, in at least one case. I mean, there's one where they bring on the two Marks, one of whom is Mark Heap, who is well-known for being in various things, none of which I could be bothered to name. But 
John Sparks comes on and does Frank Horvis. He okay, he doesn't do him on the toilet like he does in Absolutely, <laughs> but he gets the audience on side. He does. It's just yeah, a little glimmer does. of of hope. Yes, it does manage to engage with the new eighties, but I don't know. It's not three, two, one, is it? I did actually notice a couple of faces in the audience who resolutely were not laughing at his gag about having thrown up on himself the night before. But the majority of people, yeah, Only the majority a couple. Of people. I didn't detect any laughter washes. No, and we, we we suspected that some of that was going on with the Spanish person, didn't we? Especially, oh, hang on a minute. Right, okay, brief tangent. <laughs> what the hell was all that business about the contestants doing the bloody dance of the seven veils? Oh, yeah, this is the Spanish version, the, the go bit generation game. Bizarre. Some dancers come on and do the dance, and then they make the, the husbands and the couples do the dance of the seven veils. And that did, that definitely sounded like it, the, the laughter had been enhanced in italics. It sounded like the laughter was coming from a different dimension, but it does on the <laughs> early 70s one as well. I don't think they've got the audience properly mic'd up. There's definitely an audience there. I remember seeing a couple of game shows on cable where it was quite obvious there was no audience there. You get applause and all the normal things, but you never get any shots of the audience. You can also hear the the contestant's voice bouncing off the back of the wall in this huge <laughs> aircraft hangar of a studio. So we've got to a certain point. It's it's late night now in the podcast. Let's talk about controversy. Well, yeah. It's not a show that you'd automatically think was going to have controversy built into it. But of course, as with so many things of that era, it now is subject to 21st century edits. The reason I actually emphasise 21st century is the interesting thing is that I suspect like a lot of people... Even though I saw Frisu one when it was on, you know, I was it was in my youth then, and so it was just it was just something that was there along with everything else. But the first time that I ever actually really watched Free Two One was when it turned up on Challenge TV, cable and satellite channel, as it is now. But this is back in nineteen ninety seven, and they were showing it each and every evening. And I just got cable at the time, and then suddenly here was this portal to the past. Very nice it was too, and there are recordings, there are sort of domestic VHS recordings of all of those airings and it would appear so far I haven't spotted any edits for content in any of those screenings from 1997 through to about 2000-2001 whereas nowadays and admittedly Challenge is now a more prominent channel it's on Freeview but there are a lot of edits for content it's actually quite fun just sort of going through them and seeing what's been snipped out some of them are more unusual than others yeah, there are jokes where the subject is Arabs. Okay, fine, I can kind of see that. But then Irish jokes get cut out. A reference, just a reference to Enoch Powell was cut. But there was no, there was no dubious language in it uh, in, in the punchline. I mean, we'll, we'll hold fire on what the strangest edit of all is because it really is a bizarre one. I understand the logic behind it, but it still still makes me giggle. I mean, opposition but there in the past are... has always been. We can kind of understand why edits are done for broadcast television. It's more passive. It's being brought into your house. It's a bit different. When something's released on DVD, then it should be left alone because you've made that decision. You can put a note on the packaging. Television program, you can come halfway through. And people say, yeah, oh, it's just a joke. Yeah, but it can sour somebody's mood. And of course, the problem is if it sours their mood, they turn over. Nobody likes being turned over on. What was the one that was really bizarre? 
that the strangest one of all, and we sort of we knew going into this one that this episode was going to have some edits made to it. The theme was school days, and obviously, I mean, given current climate and what have you, anything that there's in any way any kind of sort of gag. Yes, there was one show where there was something about pieces of it. No, but I wouldn't mind that piece of sixteen. Yeah, that was that was episode one. Yeah, I mean, and, and also Clive Dunn said Oriental. I got snipped. Well, I mean, he's actually halfway through a sketch, and then suddenly he's at the table, he's just <laughs> teleported. Wait, the really bizarre edit was there was a sketch where Felix Bones has just arrived at a school, and the headmaster because he's a member of staff, he's not supposed to be playing a school kid, uh, and he's just arrived, and he's you know teacher and and headmaster introduced him to all the other staff. Oh, that's a lousy and sketch. And all the other. St- Oh, it is. You know, all the other stuff are, are stereotypes. And there's an edit like, oh, in here's it. the English teacher. Oh, he looks like Shakespeare. Ho, ho, ho. Here's the French teacher. He's got a bag of onions and a beret. Now, it's strange. That's allowed. The bag of onions and that's allowed. But when they brought out the German language teacher who looked like he was at the cast of Enemy at the Door, that got cut. That's what sours the sketch for me. Because, like, okay, you've made us sit through all these duff stereotypes. So you better be building up to one hell of a punchline. Well, Marie comes out and she's in sort of, I don't know what you call it, not, not quite show jumping gear, but you know what I mean, like equestrian gear. And she's got like the, the whip and what have you. And Felix Bonnes says to the headmaster, what does she teach? And the headmaster says, games. That's the punchline, ladies and gentlemen. That's the joke. The games teacher is a sexy French lady and she's a bit of a dominatrix. <laughs> the thing is, in the original version, that gets a reaction from Felix. He's going like, oh yeah, Whoa. and that got cut. The punchline can stay, but Felix's reaction to it. I've has seen to the reaction, and I'm not sure it's a sensitivity edit. It's just a very disturbing face from Felix. There. <laughs> I know he's trying to sell the punchline. He's doing his best. Personally, I would have preferred it if they cut the whole sketch and left in just his reaction. <laughs> Would have been a bit odd. It would have been a bit of a segue. And but... so far, there have been two entire editions dropped. Now, one of them was the British Empire. I think that's because there's an entire sketch with Felix Bonnes in blackface, and it's just easier to drop the show than drop a whole sketch. Well, also, he is then presenting the MacGuffin. So then you have to drop clue as well so you have to effectively have the, the item and the clue just suddenly appear on the table having just junked an entire sketch and an arrival and then repeats itself because yeah the, the British Empire is in 79 and then from Easter 1980 you have an episode called simply the jungle and exactly the same situation plays out in that and that was how this all started it all started because you wanted to know what was being edited out and I happened to be able to find the answer Let's mention the answer to the question that your real hardcore 321 fan has always wanted to know the answer to. Your real hardcore archive television fan. The answer is Series 1, Show 11. Thank you. <laughs> that was Game Show Club. Now, hang on a second. I, I know I know you're going to say that I'm patronising the audience and patting them on the head and what have you. I do think that that's going to require a little bit of explanation. Actually, I think it's been on It'll Be Alright on the Night. Right, let's not explain VT Engineer's Christmas tapes. Well, let's explain them in the briefest fashion possible. Outtakes used to be collected by the staff at television stations and the watchman at the Christmas party. Fine. So preserved on one of these tapes is a fantastic outtake from 321. First round is over. Ted has asked his questions and he's 
He's walking up to the camera and he's saying, stay tuned, there's loads more fun on 3, 2, 1. And we cut to a nice shot of the audience who are all applauding. <laughs> and somebody gets up and walks off and gets to t- goes and takes their mother as well. <laughs> it doesn't go out like that. They reshoot it. And I do notice that the, the old woman who was being escorted away is in place. So I don't know if they made her stay. <laughs> but I want to go to the toilet. Well, I'm sorry. We haven't done that justice, but it's worth tracking down every single edition of It'll Be Alright in the Night. Or maybe why not try and track down the Yorkshire Television 1979 VT Engineers Christmas tape? It's a little bit blue. Is this outtake better than the incident on Bullseye where the audience start handing out sandwiches from a Tupperware pouch? That's not an outtake, though. <laughs> that was broadcast. <laughs> that was captured <laughs> off challenge. <laughs> These are my people. That's where I'm from. Because the, the, the great thing is, is, it's not even a lunchbox. It's an old margarine tub that's peeled the labels off. <laughs> Fantastic. No, we need more of that kind of thing on television. But actually, there was one on Free 2 when we got through. Remember the other week? It was one of the, I think it was like oh, yes. 1981 shows. Oh, and it was up I, at the back. And you've got, yeah, well, that's the thing, because in 81, you've now got a different arrangement where you can see the audience in the background throughout. And when they've won, whatever, they've won the car or whatever, and then Ted's wrapping up and there's a fella right in the back and he's just thinking, yeah, I think we're done here. Right. And he's just off, he goes, goes up the stairs and around the back. And I'm, I was sort of hoping that he was going to crash straight into Mike Newman come the other way, who then escorts him back into his seat. <laughs> because that is also the same staircase where people are coming down with the prizes. So God knows where he ended up. So cutting to the chase, three, two, one, best bits series 2 to uh, was it series 5? I would say yeah. The series from 1981 through to 1984 I think that they are the peak in terms of the actual format itself. There's more though isn't there because there was talk of bringing it back. Oh? Well now I'm worried that you're reacting like that because you're the one who told me. There was talk of bringing it back with Matthew Kelly? Did a little bit of research a few weeks back and I was finding some bits and pieces about Ted Rogers and how he had after a sort of a little bit of a spell away from the spotlight, he then was in an advertisement in 1996 and then sort of came back. I remember him advertising, and, well, he advertised 54321 biscuits, but the one that sticks in my head was Mountain Dew, where he appeared as a werewolf. Yeah, that yeah. yeah, that's right. And in this article, I think it might be in the mirror that was talking about this, Right, just as a footnote, it actually said ITV are considering bringing back 321, and Matthew Kelly has been pegged as a potential host. Now, obviously that never happened, didn't go anywhere, but I can imagine that happening. I mean, at the time, Matthew Kelly, I think, was just getting to the end of his stint presenting You Bet, which I suppose you could say has got some similarities with 321 in that it's not an easy-to-categorise either game show or quiz show, and it's also one with a broad studio, and you've got celebrity contestants coming on and so on and so on so yeah i don't find that too difficult to imagine for whatever reason that didn't happen it hasn't turned up at all i mean it's, i mean recently there have been like game show revivals we've had like the the game show revival series with Anton deck and Vernon k people like that and all ones like family fortunes have come back and like we mentioned catchphrases back on now but there's no sign of it being resurrected and that's no bad thing i think because i'm not really a big fan of this habit of constantly looking backwards to then bring back form. I mean, look at the state of Through the Keyhole today. That's, that's just a piece of tat now. But there's no resemblance to the original version at all. I'd rather... And it, you can't it, have it, it variety stays... in the same way. The The attention span 
isn't there. And I'm not complaining about young folks these days. I mean across the board. I think everybody in the audience now has a shorter attention span. So the idea that you might sit through a sketch that's a bit lumpy just because you've got an idea that there'll probably be somebody you like in the next sketch, that seems to have gone. Instant gratification. And while we're being backwards looking, I wanted to. There's one thing I forgot to mention, and it's a beautiful example of how culture has changed. I am not a big fan of geek culture, and I say this as somebody who goes to the comic shop every Wednesday to buy a big stack of superhero stories. This kind of stuff is occupying a little bit too larger part of the cultural landscape for me, even though I do like superheroes. But back in the olden days, being an adult with absolutely zero knowledge of comic book culture was perfectly fine. In fact, it was expected of you. The superhero edition of 321 <laughs> is made by people who are not geeks. And can, I, not... can I give an example? Oh, I'm going to list them. 321 superheroes. Batman, with, I might say, one of the most accurate Batman utility belts I've ever seen on screen. <laughs> I can't say notice, but I'll take your word for it. Oh, yeah. It was just it could could have been drawn by Jim Aparo, Charlie's Angels, <laughs> a magician, <laughs> Biggles, and Philip Marlowe. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, superheroes. Charlie's Angels is definitely my favourite. <laughs> I would have been livid as a six-year-old. <laughs> These days, I find that kind of thing comforting. <laughs> For the audience, who presumably aren't too fussed, <laughs> it's fine. I don't think that they were necessarily going for the hardcore superhero audience. This is back in the days when you get in entertainment shows, a bunch of guys with like a gym horse and a trampoline. And one of them would be dressed as Batman, and he'd always remove his cape immediately. It would always annoy me. <laughs> it doesn't look like Batman anymore. Unless he's going to take his shirt off and have a sword fight with Ra's al Ghul, this is not comic accurate. So there you go, three, two, one. I like it. Yes, and it is currently airing on Challenge, which is now on Freeview as well as Satellite and Cable, and it's on Saturday and Sunday evenings each and every week. Let us know if you've enjoyed Game Show Club as much as you've enjoyed Sitcom Club. I don't think it's going to become a weekly thing, but there's definitely a few more shows we could revisit. In fact. I know exactly what the next one is. Maybe next time we have one of these recesses, if we just do another game show club as a bonus, I, I know what it is next time. Next time a Sky Star search with the fellow who couldn't get out of the bag. Thank you very much indeed for listening. We will be back soon with another summer sitcom spin-off podcast. <laughs>